I know I don't have to tell you this, but this episode is only for educational purposes. It is not nutrition or personalized medical advice. We want you to get the most from the episode, but to keep that in mind as well. And we really hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the Quiet the Diet podcast. I'm your host, Michelle Shapiro. I'm an integrative functional registered dietitian in New York City who has helped over 1,000 clients reverse their anxiety, approach their weight lovingly, and heal their digestive issues. I help clients to access liberating self-awareness through humor, nuance, and compassion. I lost 100 pounds the wrong way so that you don't have to. You know, without all the physical and psychological damage that comes with it. Whole body health requires so much more than just going on a restrictive diet. The Quiet the Diet podcast offers a holistic look at what it takes to be your most vibrant, healthy self, all while doing it on your own terms. I want to help you quiet the diet so you can focus on all the other parts of your amazing health and life. Welcome to the pod. I can't wait to explore the magic of functional nutrition and medicine together. over the moon excited to introduce our amazing guest today on the Quiet the Diet podcast. We have today Coach Jake Dolishall. You may know him from Instagram or you may honestly know him from my Instagram because I repost him more than I honestly make posts myself. I've been following Jake for a while and I was always struck by his eloquence and the way that he summarizes really the experience of a patient going through a health crisis and through the healthcare system in Australia was so similar to the experience that my clients were having in America. And that struck me as being both really compelling and really odd because I would think that our healthcare systems are so different or the people might be really different in the experiences they have, but there was a kind of commonality and felt experience that was so mutual. And that's always what resonated so much with me about Jake's messaging. And here's just a little bit more about Jake before the episode kicks off. Jake is a qualified nutritional therapist and fitness coach. He works mostly with two groups of people, those who want to reach their pinnacle of physical development, and then those who want to optimize their health and regain quality of life by healing from chronic illness. Jake has studied and mentored with a range of world-leading functional medicine doctors, PhDs, and world-leading bodybuilding coaches as well. He's had the opportunity to lecture and educate coaches in functional nutrition and blood chemistry. And he really does have a beautiful mastery of nutritional supplementations, vitamins, blood chemistry, and that's what we're really going to dig in today. So I could not be more excited. We're going to hear a little bit about our sponsor, Peak, before the episode kicks off, and then we're going to get right into it. Thank you for listening. I can't wait for this one. Our amazing sponsor for today's episode is Peak. I am extremely excited to talk with you about Peak, primarily because they're a group of products that I use almost daily. And specifically, I love their ginger digestion elixir, which I've used while traveling, while at home, really every single day. And what I love so much about Peak is that they have little packets that you can bring with you to mix into either cold or warm fluid. So it's so easy for traveling on the go. Instead of me bringing my ginger teas, I just bring these little packets and they taste amazing. And I've found really tremendous 
benefits, especially from their ginger digestion elixir. And what I've kind of started incorporating very recently and really excitedly is their new Radiant Skin Duo, which is a combination of two of their products, the Sun Goddess Matcha and the BT Fountain, which is a beauty electrolyte. And besides them tasting truly incredible, they're very mineral rich. And I know getting enough minerals is essential for both myself and my clients. More importantly, the function of these two products the Radiance in the Radiant Skin Duo is really to support your skin from the inside out. We know our skin is the largest organ in our body and anything that happens inside or outside of our skin can influence us. The Sun Goddess Matcha and BT Fountain really work together to provide the foundations necessary for radiant, glowing skin. And these products include green tea antioxidants, clarifying chlorophyll, moisture-boosting hyaluronic acid, and clinically proven ceramides to reduce fine lines, boost your skin elasticity, and provide deep hydration in just 15 days. The Sun Goddess is the highest quality matcha available. It's organic, ceremonial grade, and quadruple toxin screened for purity. It is shaded for 35% longer, so it actually provides more L-theanine and chlorophyll, which can help with that cooling, calming effect again, inside and out on your skin and in your body. And that really shows up as clearer, calmed skin. The BT Fountain Electrolyte product contains bioavailable electrolytes and minerals, which I have seen work time and time again to help my clients combat brain fog and really provide that hydration on a deep cellular level. I'm so excited to be able to provide a discount code for all of you to get 15% off of your next peak order and free shipping for life. In your first order of your peak starter kit, you'll also get a frother and beaker. You can head over to peaklife.com slash quiet the diet. And when I say peak life, I mean P-I-Q-U-E-L-I-F-E.com slash quiet the diet. We're also going to put the link for you in the show notes. I couldn't recommend these products more for their quality and taste. I recommend them to my clients all the time. And now I'm so happy to be able to share them with you. I so excitedly and joyously have with me Coach Jake Dolishall coming in from Australia and at a time that we discussed worked best for both of us because it's 7 a.m. my time, which is mid-morning for me, and 9 p.m. Jake's time, which is you know mid-evening for you because you're a late person. That's extremely cool. Exactly right. And Michelle, you said my name perfectly, so I'm very impressed. Well done. I think it must be because I spend so much of my time just resharing your posts on Instagram <laughs> that I've seen it so many times it's just that that's why I'm pronouncing it right. You are definitely, it is exactly, it's, it's a part of my intrinsic memory. Yeah, it's not even a question. I will, in no joking way, you are the account that I undoubtedly share the most. I feel like the way that you approach things on Instagram is so representative of who you are as a coach and a practitioner and why I was like, fangirling for you to come on today and so, so excited. I, I just love the way that you look at things so holistically. So thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you. That means a lot. Thank you. I want to hear from you, Jake, like about your personal and professional journey to end up as this specific type of coach that you are, which I also will say I consider you a functional coach. I don't know if that's a word you would use in Australia. I want to talk about that, like kind of the difference between the conventional versus functional there versus here. But tell us about your professional development to end up with being this amazing coach and practitioner you are. Mm. I kind of fell into it, to be entirely honest. So I came into it more from the fitness route. So I'd done like my fitness certificates. I I went to uni and studied sport. And I kind of did all that just because I was interested in it. Like I wasn't planning on doing it for work. I was working in not-for-profit. I was working for charities at the time. And I just kind of kept upskilling and I just kept doing these these courses and, and kept studying it just because I liked it. 
And eventually what happened is the charity I was working for, we lost our funding and we closed up. And I was like, well, I don't really know what to do now. I've got all these certificates and these qualifications. Maybe I'll just work as a coach part-time. So I started working as a coach and then very quickly I found that the people who were coming to me, they, they just weren't getting the results they expected. At this point in time, I'd actually moved across the country and I was working at a pretty well-respected gym in, in Australia and we were getting like really high-end clients. So we were getting people who'd gone to all the PTs you can think of. They'd done this stuff for years. They didn't get the results they wanted. And I had all these generally women who just weren't getting anywhere. And at the same time, my partner at the time, she also was in a very similar position. She hadn't been getting anywhere with her health and fitness. She was working with an amazing coach as well, and it just wasn't working. And so she started digging deep. It turns out she had parasites, and, and that was like a, a big thing, a, a roadblock for her. And no one could kind of figure out what was going on. So I started trying to help her. I started digging into blood work. I met some one of my good colleagues, Dave O'Brien, who started teaching me blood work. And through this process, we kind of helped her and then I was able to help my other clients. And then I realized that ultimately like almost all these clients who are coming to me, they've got these same issues in common. And so within a couple of years, I'd sort of gone from ultimately just doing body composition, strength-based work to now people are coming to me. Maybe they had some body comp goals, but they heard, you know, about me through clients who had, you know, endometriosis or whatever sort of health issues, IBS, whatever. And then it kind of just kept shifting that way. And I guess I just like, that's what I mean by fell into it. I just realized actually the more I went down that path, the more that I just realized people were being let down. Like there just wasn't really an avenue for people who had sort of these health issues apart from the conventional system, which wasn't helping anyone. They just weren't really getting help anywhere else. And I like, it's weird. I'm like, I'm a fitness coach. Like why am I the one who's, who's helping these people? Like that doesn't really make sense, but that's kind of how I ended up here. And, you know, that was I don't know, 10 years ago now, whatever it was, maybe not quite that, but a while ago, but that's sort of how I led to this point. That's incredible. And for you, it was really like logic led the path because you were like, this is weird. They're all doing calories in, calories out, lifting. They're doing everything they need to be doing. And it's, they're just not getting results. Not only are they not getting the body composition results that they're expecting, but you know, they've also got impaired sleep. They've got poor, poor energy, poor digestion. Like it wasn't even just, oh, they're not losing body fat. It's like these people are just not healthy human beings. Like nothing is working well for them, let alone losing body fat. Yeah. It's, I think, I don't know how it's possible that there's still trainers or nutritionists who are still kind of obliging by that calories in calories out mentality and ignoring the whole of the person. But I actually think that you being a fitness trainer is a unique position for you to be the person that turned into this type of practitioner because trainers are sitting with people in a really intimate way and, and holding that space for them. I actually think it's, if you're paying attention as a trainer, you actually end up probably going in the same direction because you notice like, oh, they're not feeling well and what I'm doing isn't working. I, I never understand when people who are just so straight up calories and calories out, I'm like, do you think their patients or clients are getting results or do you think that they're just not caring if they get results? Like, do you think there's just a special type of person who gets results? What do you think? Just an opinion question. Yeah. There's a lot of good points you brought up there. So one point I, I just want to touch on is you mentioned how like as a coach sort of, you know, in a good position to work with these people, it's really interesting because I do a lot of educating with like practitioners and coaches as well. And when I was doing a lot of like upskilling for myself in the last few years and, and learning from like naturopathic doctors and people like that, 
I remember sitting in these courses and I'd be like, this is fascinating. Like the understanding of, of you know, the human body is amazing and blood chemistry is amazing. And then they'll start talking about exercise. And I'm like, oh, my God, oh, no. Like you just don't understand this at all. Or they talk about nutrition. And, and again, similar. It's like some of that's good, but some of that, oh, my goodness, like that is so off. And so a lot of the, the, the people I mentor, I get coaches who don't understand that side of things, like the, the you know, the blood chemistry and, and physiology and whatever. And that's great. I can, I can go with that with them. And then some of the people I, I mentor are naturopaths or nurses or people in the medical world. And they get a lot of that stuff, maybe a bit more from a conventional standpoint sometimes, but, you know, they've got a fairly good handle. And it's the, the exercise and the nutrition and that stuff that they have no idea over. And that's the stuff we can go over. So I think integrating those two together, that's really powerful. But to your point with coaches who do the, the calories in, calories out, and it doesn't work, I think there's probably two things I've mentioned there. One is it'll work for some people. And if you work with enough people, you're going to get enough results. And so if, you know, ultimately what these coaches do, is well, if it doesn't work for them, it worked for all these people. So what's wrong with you? Like you're lying to me. You know, I, I remember hearing this all the time in the industry. It's like, well, your, your client's lying to you. If they're not losing body fat, they're lying. They're not tracking, blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, I, I can tell you, like I lived with someone who tracked perfectly and she was eating like 1,150 calories day in, days out. She did not budge. So it's not always the case. And sometimes like I'm in a privileged position where I've seen that not work. Like some coaches haven't seen that. And so they've been told by other coaches they're lying and that's all they've got to work off. And then you get like an 18-year-old PT who has no life experience, who's like, oh, well, someone said they're lying. Therefore, I'm going to tell this 45-year-old woman with Hashimoto's that she's lying. It's like, well, just because you have an experience, it doesn't mean that's the only only sort of solution or outcome. So I think that's that's part of the issue is that they're going to get results and if it doesn't work for those clients, they move on. But one other point I guess I want to make is a lot of the time coaches who are doing this stuff and, and you know, nothing against you know some of these coaches, but they probably know that those methods aren't working for everyone. Like I've had conversations with coaches in the industry and, you know, like not going to name names of people who are really big names in the industry. And I've specifically asked them about, hey, you know, what do you do with clients who have these gut issues? And they'd say, I don't know. I don't know anything about gut, like gut health. Does, if it doesn't work, it's not my thing. And it's like, okay. <laughs> so so you're like literally someone with millions of followers and you're like, well, wow. I don't know what to do. Like that's like how many people have IBS? Like, what, 10, 15%, whatever the last stats are, like that's a huge percentage of people you're not able to, to service. And you're also just, it, have you ever heard of the Dunning-Kruger effect? Yeah. Which is like the, these two psychologists made an XY axis for confidence and competence. Like you said, that 18-year-old PT who's like, listen what I learned in school, like look what I got. And when you and I have worked with, I know you've worked with like thousands of people too. The more that you work with people, the more you realize that it is the necessity of individuality is so high for every single person where, again, even two 45-year-old Hashimoto's patients might look completely different from each other because of other things going on in their body. And I think, I, I guess you, you really eloquently answered my question, which is either people are sticking to their ego and sticking to, hey, this is what I learned, this is what I know. And they, like you said, there's people who are pretty like, if you're metabolically active, calories in, calories out will probably work for you better than if you have other like metabolic dysfunction. Then it becomes 
you know, a bigger picture issue. So I think like you're saying, maybe if they're working with people who have never tried to lose weight before, have no concurrent autoimmunity, gut issues, anything like that, which is very rare to find these days, and they just try to want to lose 10 pounds or something, calories will probably work for them, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. There's people who it will work for. So that's a really good answer. Mm. Yeah. That makes sense to me. And then also, Jake, this is so interesting because I don't know if you know this, but in the States, I feel like when it comes to celiac disease or it comes to any sort of gut condition, we always are like, ah, if you just go to Europe or you go to Australia, (laughs) the food's so much better there. I can eat gluten there and not have a problem. But so I've always perceived, and this is like, you know, I think it was different, honestly, when I was in school versus now, but I've always perceived Australian and much of Europe to have better kind of health than Americans do. Is that, am I totally wrong in that? Have you guys caught up and been westernized? And (laughs) and tell, like, tell me what's going on in that kind of chronic illness landscape. Like, are we just wrong? I have a feeling we've caught up a little bit. If you look at the obesity rates, like we're pretty close to you guys. So I I don't know that we're a lot better. I guess it's funny because what you said about, oh, you know, I can go to Australia and I can eat gluten. We say the same thing. People say, I can go to Europe and I can eat gluten. Now, I don't know about you, but it's interesting to me. Oh, maybe it's Europe that's better. (laughs) Yeah. Well, if you look at the countries that don't use glyphosate, it's interesting that the countries where people generally feel better eating weed are often places where they're not using glyphosate. So I don't know. I'm not saying that's definitely the only thing, but it's interesting. But I don't think we're that much better off than you guys are, to be entirely honest. And, you know, even rates of of people on medications here, chronic health conditions, it's relatively similar. And I like I couldn't tell you statistically speaking how this has changed in the last couple of decades, but I know for me, like when I was in school, like how many people had a chronic health condition? Like you know, not many people. I, I, of, of all the people in my social network, I could think of a handful of people who had some kind of health condition. And nowadays, like I'm struggling to think of a handful of people who don't have a health condition. Like that is a unique situation to be in. So I completely agree. Yeah, if it's anything like you guys, yeah, it's, it's going to be the same. So I don't, I don't think we're much better off over here. To be entirely honest, I, I do think our food supply is better. I, I do agree with that, and that will obviously translate into some better health outcomes. Yeah, de- definitely. <laughs> but I, yeah, I think we have gone downhill a little yeah, bit as well. No, definitely. Maybe you have glyphosate too, and that's why in Europe, maybe Europe is the glyphosate-free place in some countries, and maybe that's why Australia and the United States have similar. It's really interesting, and this is so fascinating to me because it's not only that in the chronic illness conversation, sorry, my brain is going so fast because I have so many things I want to ask you already. (laughs) I'm like, oh my God. So my cousin's boyfriend is from New Zealand. He's a rugby player, Kata, super cool, and he, it was interesting because he had family members who had lupus and my my cousin also has lupus. And I was always so fascinated. I was like, I wouldn't even think that autoimmune conditions or any disorders of immunity would be happening. But it does seem like, again, a lot of chronic illness rates have been catching up in other countries. This is the the absolute truth is that when I think of like when I'm thinking of New Zealand, I'm thinking in general, of course it is. I I do believe the chronic illness rates are lower, but I'm thinking of people who are outdoors more. I'm thinking of people who are engaging in like sport more. So it was fascinating to me. I did look up also chronic illness rates in Australia versus America. And you got, like you said, you guys are about 50% have one or more diagnosed conditions. And in the United States is about 60%. So it's, it's quite comparable at this point. And what I also find to be comparable and odd, and that I really want to talk to you about is it's just so weird to me that the messaging you have around doctor's appointments and around 
the conventional care that people are receiving and the gaslighting people get in doctor's offices. It's the same thing happening across the world. What's your explanation of that? Why is it the same exact system, but on opposite sides of the world? And and what real problems are you seeing with that care? Yeah, it's an interesting one because like our model is quite different to yours. We've kind of got this hybrid private and public model. And so it's, it's, it's marginally better, I suppose, in some ways in, in terms of how it works. And like for me, in terms of the clients I work with, I work with clients all over the world. And it's funny because I look at Aussie clients and I look at our, our healthcare and it's a headache. It's an absolute headache. And I'll talk about that more in a moment. But then I get clients in like especially some European countries and it's next level. Like, you know, they'll be in a situation where they won't be able to get blood work done. And the, the doctor they've got, they'll say, look, I'll order like, Literally, I'll order like a, a full blood count, not even with differentials, like hardly anything, and that's it. And in my head, I'm like, well, why don't you just go to another doctor? Like, just find someone else. And like, no, no, I can't. This is a doctor I'm given. I, I, I'm not allowed to go outside that. It's like, oh my gosh, your system is miles wow. behind ours, and ours sucks. So, in some ways, we're kind of lucky, but it's it's unbelievable because at least over here, if we're not getting the care we need, we we can just pay for it. Yeah, so we're not stuck in like locked in that system but it's still obviously conventional. So, you know, if, if the questions are, well, why is the conventional system failing us? I guess we, I mean, that's such a big question, hey? Like if we just go back to the roots of medicine and go back 150 years, we can, we can start to identify where things went wrong. But if we just look at here and now, well, the issue is like our healthcare system is not set up for health. Like, you know, this as well as I do, the goal is not to make someone healthy. The goal is to manage disease. And that's like, that's all well and good. Like if we're honest with that's what we're doing. Okay. Let's, let's just be clear with that. But you know, you're not going to a doctor to be optimally healthy. They're not, that's not their goal. You know, we can see this very clearly with the way they look at lab work. You know, they, they'll get a blood test and they'll say, well, this is where we think this is dangerous. And you're, point one off that that's fine or you're one point over that let's use a medication let's try to get you just under and now we're happy again like that's ultimately the goal so i think if we're looking at healthcare we're like well why are we failing people why are people just stacking more and more medication and why is are we seeing chronic health disease go up well that's why because we're not actually trying to fix anything we're just we're, like how do we keep within these parameters and okay if you've gone outside it here's another medication and that's it we're not actually trying to make people healthy so in a nutshell i think that's what the issue is it's it's sick care it's disease care it's not health care absolutely and i think it comes from the belief i'm assuming that our body is kind of in separate parts and that our body is not one whole if you have a thyroid condition your thyroid's not connected to the rest of your body and we're not seeing the connection I'm wondering probably and this is a more speculative question but the people who invented modern medicine i'm sure that they're kind of deriving from Europe, the United States, or Australia, and the same message is being disseminated at the same time across the entire world. Because it seems like, again, the same exact lab work issues, you know, one body part view of the body is happening everywhere. So it's probably the same dudes, by the way. I'm assuming it was just the same people and and that was disseminated across the world. That it Absolutely. Has to be, yeah. Yeah. And it's it's a fairly new way of doing medicine. You know, the Western medicine model, it, 150 years old, something like that. And, and it took over from an alternative form. It took over from like homeopathic medicine and they were head to head, right? Like, and, you know, homeopathic medicine is its own thing entirely. But, you know, you probably know this as well as I do, that they were just as popular for a long time 
And it was just through some fairly dodgy kind of political work that actually basically homeopathic medicine just got shunted completely. And then over, I mean, what, not 100 years, that's where really Western medicine took over. Yeah, it's a very short time frame in the context of TCM or Ayurveda, which are estimated to be 5,000 to 10,000 years old. We're talking about 100 years. You're absolutely right. I also, again, my impression would be proximity-wise, Australia is obviously closer to some of these, the countries where these ancient modalities derived. So I would think possibly the influence would be stronger, but from what you're saying, it seems like modern medicine just kind of squashed everything in its path. It's, is it not accepted to practice TCM or Ayurveda or naturopathy? I want to hear about that from you too. No, not really. No, it's it's not really. Like it's very, very westernized here. But don't forget that like our country, as far as like white settlement or white civilization in Australia, like it's not much older than Western medicine is. So <laughs> we, we don't have these kind of like ancient roots to really draw on obviously our our indigenous people that's going to be complete like they're very skeptical of of modern medicine and western medicine but in terms of sort of you know modern australia we we don't have that sort of history and it's you're not at any point and i'm assuming in medical schools we're not learning about the medicinal properties from indigenous peoples of australia that's not like something that would be coming up or something that it's it's really just strictly modern medicine it's just not even studied yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah, and sad to me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've got because I mean, obviously, we've got like tea tree oil, and we've got yeah, a lot of like a lot of native plants that aren't really found elsewhere. And and every now and then, I see a new study come out, and it's like basically they'll be like, we don't know about any properties really of this plant, and now we've studied, and now we find like there was one only last year with uh, some kind of lemon myrtle, I think it was, like Australian lemon myrtle, and they found that it potentially activates satellite cells and they hadn't studied it before and, and, you know, maybe that could have some even potentially like body composition benefits potentially. And it's like this is, what, we studied this in 2022? Like, goodness, when, when are we actually going to you know, really do our due diligence here? Absolutely. It's. I mean, I guess what it just comes down to this is all – major colonization issues too. I mean, this is, that is at the root of the conversation we're having is that it's just not taking into appreciation and understanding what has been known scientifically for thousands and thousands of years and really good science too, because it's being vetted by use with humans and, and seeing what works and what doesn't, and then passed down generationally, which is in my opinion, very good science, the best probably versus doing a test on a like rat in a lab, you know, that's, that's not as good science as that, which is fascinating. So I think this, I just think that piece of the conversation is really important because it's definitely a misconception. I think that a lot of Americans have, which is that like, we are the sickest and the same thing isn't happening other places. But when the ideology is sprouting from the same place and being spread, it ends up the same everywhere, which is sad, but I mean, we have to talk about it. It's important. Like, I think that's really, really important. Yeah. At least we're all in the same boat together. Exactly. We'll all be sick together. There we go. No, we're going to all heal together. We can joke about being sick together, but we're going to all heal together. And this, again, this was so fascinating to me because, and I find this with a lot of amazing practitioners, Jake, no matter if you're in Australia, America, anywhere in the entire world, but we kind of all land in the same spot. Like every time you post something, I'm like, yes, repost. Yes. Because I think there is inherent truth about health. It's not that I think people think science is so finicky and nutrition is so finicky and that it is, is always changing and evolving. But at the bottom, 
there's some things that we just know and that are true, right? And what are those for you? What are those like inevitable truths that you think, and this is a hard question, but inevitable truths that you think are true for all people when it comes to nutrition, like no matter where you are or kind of what you're going through, what do you think is always true? I love that. I I find a lot of the time people can become too hyper-focused on a study and it's like, well, this study showed this outcome and then they wait for another study. It's like, well, actually this study showed this outcome and and then you flip-flop and like, I don't know what to believe now. Like I just wait for the next study to come out and and that's going to tell me what to believe. And what's one of the most liberating things you you can do is to start to try to understand, well, how does the body actually work? Like if we actually understand what's the mechanism behind this, then we can look at a study and be like, I have a feeling I know where that study is going to end. Like we can start to predict the outcome based on how the human body is working. And obviously, you know, different compounds and stuff, that's going to be a little bit different. Like we'll, we'll learn more. But once we basically understand like how a human body works, it's like, well, we can, we, you know, it's just, we're just, it's so much more empowering rather than just being stuck waiting for what that study outcome is. So I love that. But in terms of like just basic universal things, I mean, oh, that's a tough one. And if we're just looking at nutrition only, I think it's a hard question. It is. It is. And because even, even genetically, you know, we have to, we have to accept that some people can do better on certain diets. So I was plant-based for over a decade and I tried my best and I felt okay. Yeah. Cool. I mean, look, a lot of us have been there. Hey, a lot of people in this space have been there. But, like, genetically speaking, I'm not made to do that. Like, I've got a BSOMO1 gene. I'm not going to deal with vitamin A very well, MT, MTHFR gene. Like, there's a lot of things that are stacked up against me on being on a plant-based diet. But there's some people who they're going to be okay-ish. Like, they're going, to be, they're going to do better than I'm going to do. You know what I mean? So there's always going to be individual variants. But I think if we just understand, well, from a, like, doctor, I don't know if you know Dr. Brian Walsh. He's He's... You're probably familiar with him. No, Absolutely. you should definitely check out his work. Yeah, yeah. He's very good. Yeah, yeah. No, no, oh, I am. Yeah, you are? Oh, yeah, very much. Yeah, yeah, great. So he talks about, and I'm not sure if he made this up or if he, if he got us someone else, but talks about this, this sort of sequence of, of how do we create a human, a healthy human, yeah? And he talks about like, well, if, if cells are healthy, then we're going to have healthy tissue. If tissue is healthy, we're going to have healthy organs. Organs are healthy, healthy organ systems. Healthy organ systems, we're going to have a healthy human or organism. And if we just go all the way back to that basic level, let's look at cells. It's like, well, what do we need for cells to function? Well, we need B vitamins, we need B12, we need B9. Like if we just start looking at these building blocks, I mean, where do we get B12? Meats. Like we don't get it in plants, right? You know, where, where do we get, like, you know, we start looking at what the body's made out of, bones. You know, what's bones made out of? It's made out of collagen where do we get collagen where do we get glycine like most of this we get in animals yeah like once we start digging in really deep and what are the things we fundamentally need it's like well those things aren't found anywhere else except for in animals and animal products so that's me it's just a fundamental truth it's like yes we're lucky and we're you know we we live in an age now where if you don't want to eat animals you can actually do that because we've got supplementation now. But for all of human history, we didn't have that. You know, you couldn't take a B12 supplement. So I think that's like, for me, that's one of the most universal nutrition truths is like, you know what, as a human, we actually need animals in our diet. And if not, then we need a supplement pretty intelligently. 
Absolutely. I think that's a really important truth. And you circled around this extremely important topic, which is there's the difference between, and my friend Andrea Nakayama always says this, there's a difference between the science of nutrition and the practice of nutrition. And you are a practice of nutrition person, which is the highest compliment I can give. But I I also, I love when you're talking about we don't need a study to understand phase one and phase two of liver detoxification. We know what that is. So I think people are always looking for that like one studies to substantiate. It's so interesting. I got into like a little bit of a battle with a dietitian on Instagram who was saying there's no RCTs saying that seed oils or consumption of linoleic acid is inflammatory. And I was like, I don't need to a study because I know the pathways that it goes down. So I, since I know the biology, I don't need a specific study to verify the biochemical reactions that are going on. We know that already. Exactly. But it's heresy for us to say that. Like that, if you say that on, on social media, or you say that to the evidence-based world, you're not like, that's, you're not allowed to say that, you know, like it, it has to be, it has to be Outcome first, mechanism doesn't matter. What do we see observationally? What do we see in humans? The mechanism simply is relevant. And for a long time, I saw, I heard that and I'm like, it doesn't make sense to me, but like everyone's saying this, like, I guess I have to believe it. And eventually, I'm like, it, it just doesn't make sense. Like, I'm not seeing this work with my clients. I know if I focus on the mechanism, I know I'm going to have a healthier client. So eventually, I'm like, screw it. <laughs> I'm just going to do this. And then I started hearing more people say, you know what, this doesn't make sense. I'm like, oh, thank goodness I'm not the only one. Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's also just, you know, sit across from someone. I've worked with over a thousand clients. Some of my clients have been with for four years weekly. I know what's going to influence their bodies at this point because they communicate with me. I'm very aware of what's going to be right for them. And it's so it's, it's like, there's such amazing science and in the practice of nutrition, because you're literally, you know, how can you get with some of my clients? over a hundred hours of d- data and information about what works with their bodies and what their mediators are. Like that is, that's the gold standard in my head of seeing what actually is working with someone. So of course we love the science of nutrition. We love new studies. They're extremely fun and interesting, but there's no replacement. Like you said, what I would call the the foundation and for you would call the mechanism. Like if you know the mechanisms, then you don't have to worry about fancy protocols and supplements, which is actually hilariously 30 minutes in the topic of today, but you don't have to worry about, Oh, how do I just do this fancy protocol? Because the protocol will kind of lay itself out when you know what the body needs in the state and environment that it's in. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Beautiful. I knew you were going to knock it out of the park because I just love the way you talk about everything. Yes. Thank you. Okay. So we are going to talk about nutritional supplements and vitamins today and things like that. You do an amazing job of, of helping not only the individual to understand application of supplements in an individual way and for certain conditions, but you also help educate practitioners on that. So just tell us about your WhatsApp group before we even get started and kind of when this started. And it's just very exciting and amazing. I've been in it. So tell me about it. (laughs) Yeah, sure. So thank you. Thank you for being part of it. So basically I have a a list of of practitioners that I've mentored for a few years. And one day I was like, I, I think I had two people asking the same question. I was like, you know what, there's probably a lot of questions I'm getting that like other practitioners would benefit from hearing that answer. And I thought, it's probably not even just practitioners, like maybe just the lay person who wants to know some of this stuff. So I put together this group, but the intention was only going to be, I'm just going to share like one question I get from one of these mentoring clients a day into it. And I was like, if I can get 20 people who are part of this, like I'll be happy. At least 20 people will want to be educated. 
And then I got like a few hundred people sign up in a fairly short amount of time. I was like, oh my goodness, like a lot of people want to be educated. So now that's become, it's sort of transformed into a combination of everything we've talked about so far. So I've tried to put in blood work in there, kind of like optimal values I work off, how we can start to identify patterns. But then I've tried to merge it as well with like the fitness side of things, which is a little bit new for me in terms of like my audience is probably, they do gravitate more towards the, the, the health side of things rather than the fitness side of things. So I know I'm nurturing them along with this and I know that maybe it's not the most popular stuff, but I think the educational aspect of that is really important to, to integrate it all together. And then I try to provide sort of some of this like newer studies that are coming out. If there's something really interesting that, that I'm sort of seeing that's been published or some, some alternative health protocols that people could experiment with that are sort of offering an alternative just to conventional therapy or conventional treatment. So I've got, I don't know, over maybe 30 or 40 health protocols in there, but it's just an opportunity, I guess, for me to help educate people and um, not just practitioners, but people who are just interested as well for their own health and family and loved ones too. Yeah. And I, I have to say what I love about your protocols and what I love about your approach to vitamins and supplements and minerals and, and herbals is that you are always working at the mechanism when you're giving these recommendations. So your protocols, I noticed that about them. It's not like if you have, so the difference, I'll give an example for people is if you had something like HPA axis dysregulation or what we used to call it like adrenal fatigue, right? Like burnout. Okay. Let's say, it used to be that you would treat that by trying to do things to make your body either calm down or come up, depending on what was going on with your cortisol. But now we know that our HPA axis requires minerals for function. And we know that our HPA axis requires certain cofactors, vitamins for function. And so it's not only just trying to make your kind of symptoms of high or low cortisol change, but it's also working at what does the actual system require? And I, I really noticed that about your protocols, which I think is so amazing. And what I want to ask you about is what are you seeing in ways of like, cause your podcast called gut feelings adorable. What are you seeing in ways of gut supplementation and things like that, that I, I think I'm, I'm asking a leading question, but that looks more like a conventional kind of supplement approach versus what I call like a more integrative or functional approach like you have. Can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think we've, we always have this danger of alternative health or functional health or functional medicine or whatever language you want to use becoming just an alternative to conventional medicine. And conventional medicine, I mean, really, it's it's a pill for every ill. You know, that's really what they're doing is what medicine can we use for whatever diagnosable condition. And alternative medicine sometimes can start to do that. It can start to be like, well, you've got, and often they'll make up different diagnoses, right? Instead of, you know, whatever, it'll be like, well, you've got leaky gut, you've got intestinal leaky gut, you've right. got candida overgrowth, you've got SIBO, they've got their own list. Exactly. We've got our own list. And we say, well, this is the treatment for this condition that we've now got. And so, you know, here's a leaky gut protocol or here's a, a whatever. And so it's not getting to what the cause is. And, and I think this is something I've sort of, I guess, thought a lot about over the last couple of years is when you do understand the mechanism behind things, it can sometimes it can be easy to justify why something might be going on, right? So let's say someone does have whatever health condition, let's just, let's just say endometriosis, right? And then we look at someone who's got endo and they've maybe got digestive symptoms. And it's really easy for us to look at that and be like, well, we know studies show that people with endo have higher levels of negative gram bacteria. We know negative gram bacteria is what makes up SIBO. This person's got digestive symptoms. Here's a really plausible explanation. And so we offer that explanation, but it's like, well, 
But what if that wasn't it? And then we start making a healthier human and they get better. And it's like, well, they got better anyway, but maybe it wasn't what I thought it was, right? And I think that as practitioners, reality is, I think most of the time, we probably don't actually know what the underlying cause is, right? Like we can take a really good guess and maybe sometimes it's that and maybe sometimes it's not, but ultimately we get a, a healthier human who's functioning better. The blood work is more aligned with where it should be. Those symptoms are going to start to get better, whether it was what I said it was or it wasn't. Because, you know, any symptom someone comes to me with, I can probably think of four or five ways to explain that in really convincing ways that would make sense with their body, but it may not have been any of those. You know what I mean? So <laughs> I don't even know uh, how, how do we, how we sort of mixing natural and conventional. I think that's really the biggest one is we've just started coming up with an alternative, like here's a supplement for every ill instead of a pill. You know, it's the same thing. I call it junk functional where I'm like, no, that's conventional medicine. If you're giving one specific supplement, prescribing a supplement for a specific problem, you're not approaching or looking at the possible root causes. And you also touched on something which has been a concern for me in the functional medicine world, which is needing to find one rootiest of root causes. I think we have many system-wide failures happening at the same time. And actually getting to the root cause of something can actually neglect the other root causes that are happening at the same time. So there really is not one root of root causes. All things in our body happen connected to each other. So one thing can make another thing have a feedback loop amongst itself. So targeting kind of like you said, and I have, I've used this visual in other episodes, but it's like almost if our bodies are a house and we want to, you know, have, again, we're targeting, let's say something like SIBO or something like that. If the bottom of our house and our foundation is torn up and, and wretched, but the top of our house looks pretty good and we hang pretty pictures up. That's like throwing little supplements on there. You put pretty pictures on upstairs. It doesn't matter if the foundation is crumbling. So you have to focus on in every single person, what is that foundation? And, and I often have clients coming to me saying, what do you think about this supplement? And I'm like, I don't think anything about that supplement. I don't think about supplements. I think about what is going on in your body and how we can use these tools to facilitate an environmental or system-wide change. It's not to fix that one thing. It's to look at and see how it can shift things and, and create a little momentum and healing versus let me fix, let me fix leaky gut with this supplement. And, and that's really a concern with a lot of the gut supplements I see too, because it's, and it's targeting people who are bloated and vulnerable and uncomfortable. And it's saying, here, take this supplement. There's no way a supplement can fix a problem. And I think that's what people are missing too. No way. It's a, it's an attitude issue as well, isn't it? Or a perception issue because people, we expect it to work the way conventional medicine works. And so people like, well, conventional medicine says, take this, whatever medication for 12 weeks or for six months for the rest of my life. And then whatever issue will, will be better. And so that's often the, you know, it's different when people have been part of the sort of alternative health world for a long time. But if someone's just entering it, that's the attitude they have. And, it's understandable why that's all they know. So they'll come to, you know, you or I as a practitioner and be like, well, I've got X issue, X symptom, X condition. What do I do? Expecting to be told, take this supplement or take these five supplements for 12 weeks and then go back to what you were doing and you'll be fine. And it's a hard pill to swallow to be told that actually, yes, there's some supplements wanted to take. And some of these you may need to take forever because you've got a pretty deficient diet and just food in general is more deficient than it used to be. 
And I also need you to not eat these things that are making you worse and not do these things that are making you worse. And you know what? As a human, you're actually meant to sleep at least eight hours a day. So I actually need you to, to not work until two o'clock in the morning and get four hours of sleep. Like, I'm on side tangent, the amount of PTs I have coming to me and they're like, man, I've got an issue. I've got no energy. What's wrong with me? And I'm like, mate, your bloods look fine. You're getting six hours of sleep. That's you're what's tired. wrong with you. Oh, no, nah, no, nah, must have must have mitochondrial issues. Like, no, no, just sleep. Let's see what happens. And then they sleep for eight hours and like, oh, my energy is fine. <laughs> yeah, it's fine because you just needed sleep. So unless we're, and that, that's the reality is we need to make sacrifices. Like we're not, the stuff we're not meant to do as a human. And if you're not willing, like it sucks, but like if you're not willing to make some of those changes to, to live the way humans meant to live, you're probably not going to get the health outcome you want to get. It's exactly right. And I, again, this comes back to that foundational idea. Like, don't worry about slapping a glutathione supplement on top of your crap sleep schedule. Like, if you do not have your foundations in order, nervous system support, blood sugar support, sleep, like adequate, you know, nutrient balance, it, it doesn't matter what you do. There's no leaky gut supplement that's going to help. If, again, the what I call like almost like the just being a human things are not handled. Like you have to be a human first and th- before you start wondering about, you know, these supplements and things like that. And I have a, a saying to my clients when they say, oh my gosh, I'm so tired. And they feel that reactive and nervousness around feeling tired. And I'm like, well, you're tired because you're tired. Or they're like, oh, I, I don't know why I feel hungry. So hungry every morning. I'm like, because you're hungry, you know, you're hungry because you're hungry and you're tired. Like just like almost like if you were a baby, right? Like, you know, you, we used to listen to our bodies so much when we were babies. It's like, you know, yeah, you're, you're, you're sad because you're sleepy. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's what you're tired because you're sleepy. Exactly like that for your client. So I want to talk about myth busting a little bit and providing some education on these very popular nutritional supplements that we see. The first one I want us to start off with is vitamin D because I think vitamin D from what I know of, conventional doctors are very quick to recommend vitamin D because they are measuring those levels. It's one of the only vitamin or mineral levels that are being monitored besides electrolytes, obviously, in your CBC. But vitamin D has also this... Doctors have a huge fear around vitamin D that I hear because of its ability for toxicity. And they're like, you can never take more than 5,000 international units. Tell me, what do you, what's the deal with vitamin D that you're seeing in, from a societal context? And then let's talk some facts about vitamin D supplementation too. Mm. So it's interesting that you find it easy to get vitamin E tested over there. Over here, I actually have a, a real hard time getting it tested unless oh. clients are paying for it out of pocket. Most wow. doctors are just not willing to do it. Yeah. And, and they'll say, like, I, I've had doctors call me up and be like, I'm not doing this. I'm literally refusing to do this. Why would someone need to test vitamin D? And I'm like, well, what do you mean why? Like, are, are you not familiar with, like, the literature tying to, like, basically every single autoimmune condition under the sun? It's just a weird thing. And, you know, even, like, even that aside, it's like, well, what about the literature that says, like, well, like 50% of people are low in vitamin D and that's like based off, you know, conventional values, let alone optimal values. Like it's just madness to not even test it. So yeah, that's weird. But anyway, vitamin D. So the toxicity question is a funny one. So I don't know about you, but I feel doubtful when I look at vitamin D toxicity studies and maybe there's some new ones since I looked into it a couple of years ago, but when you look at the actual studies on vitamin D, and there's not a lot here on vitamin D toxicity, but if you look at the symptoms associated with vitamin D toxicity, they're really similar to magnesium deficiency symptoms, right? Oh, yeah. And what do we know with vitamin D in high amounts? It's going to cause depletion of magnesium. 
So it's a little bit interesting to me. Like, I don't know how much this whole toxicity thing is an issue. Obviously, it's going to increase the absorption of calcium, right? So that, you know, that can be an issue. And, and even there's even studies where people have just had very high sun exposure and they've actually had calcification issues. So that is a concern, but there's really a simple solution to that. It's called vitamin K2. Exactly. So if someone's taking K2 with vitamin D, that's not really going to be a concern. If someone's taking magnesium with vitamin D, well, then a lot of those toxicity symptoms probably aren't going to be a concern. So for me, I don't particularly see the danger with it, right, or, or the concern or, or whatever, you know, why you can only take 1,000 IU or whatever. It doesn't really make sense to me. That said, though, and this we're probably going to maybe do this a little bit differently, I don't actually use vitamin D a whole lot with my clients. And I do that partly because when people are coming to me, it's it's normally like there's a there's a house fire. Like we need to put something out, right? Like it's not not many people are coming to me because like, hey, I feel fairly good. I just want to be like a little bit better. It's normally like I can't get out of bed, or you know, like it's a it's a big issue, yeah. And in a state like that, I would argue that you know there's there's often going to be at least a dozen different supplements I'm going to want to use with that client. Yeah. And some of those will be specific for a short period of time. Maybe we need to do some gut repair. That's often going to be a big one. Maybe there's some dysbiosis, whatever's going on. And I would say that for me, I just don't think vitamin D quite makes a cut for being in the top 10 or 12 supplements I'm going to need to use with our client at that point in time. And then when we look at the literature around, like, say, liver, like liver detoxification, glutathione, and we see that. Sometimes just by improving liver status and, and glutathione status, we can actually see vitamin D levels go up. If we look at the fact that by reducing inflammation and infection, we can see vitamin D status go up. Yeah. I'm like, well, why don't we start with that? Let's see where vitamin D ends up. And if it goes up, perfect. And if it still doesn't go up 12 weeks from now, 24 weeks from now, okay, let's, let's take some vitamin D. I'm, I'm fine with it then. At that point, we're taking five or six different supplements. We, we've got rid of half of them. Let's add one in. You know what I mean? So that's tends to be the way I do it with clients. And I use a lot of cod liver oil. That's got a bit of vitamin D in it anyway. Not a huge amount, but enough to give a bit of support. So, yeah, I don't know if that answered your vitamin D question. It or not, did. But. I think it was beautiful. And it's so funny because in the United States, vitamin D has crossed into the conventional layer, just so you know, which is very interesting because doctors often prescribe 50,000 international units of D2. And I'm like, but if you have an issue converting D2 to D3, like like you're, if you have an issue hydroxylating, then you're going to have an issue with it. That's very common to do a weekly 50,000 international units of D2 with no K, no magnesium, nothing. But that's actually very common. And I think it's because it's, which the reason why also you're, you are not using vitamin D as one of your top supplements is also because, like we said, it's not really treating the mechanism for your people. And that's your game is like working at the mechanism. And that's usually not one of one of their top kind of conditions. But I will say it's a little vitamin D is a weird one in the States because it is it's a little bit like it got owned <laughs> by the conventional side at this point, which is it's like one of the only it'll be like when people get their labs run, they'll do like a CBC BMP vitamin D. Like that's like the the other one that is randomly run. How funny. It's so a thing. It's very interesting. And I have conversations about vitamin D a lot as a result of that. And it's funny that you can't even get that run. I don't know why it became a thing, but it is a thing here where people, it is the one, it's one of the only things that is tested. So thank you. That was extremely helpful. And then 
I, I like your how you're approaching it also instead of saying, take 5,000 international units of vitamin D, you're saying, let's, for most people, again, it's a mechanism game and vitamin D is not something that's top of your list. Love that. Where I'm going to ask you a very hard mineral question and it's very complicated, but we have to talk about iron supplementation. Iron is so complicated, but I do want us to kind of open the floor to how you feel about iron supplementation. This is something else that if your hemoglobin or your hematocrit is low, they're going to recommend an iron supplement in the States. That's very, very common. What are your concerns about iron supplementation and what's going on with our lab work in ways of iron that we might be misunderstanding from a conventional standpoint? I mean, it's it's a massive, massive topic, like you said. Yeah, it so it's, it's the same episode. over here. I mean, so many people are told to take iron. It is. It, it, multiple episodes. Honestly, it's huge. So, so many people, especially females, like, and if someone's not eating a lot of meat as well, so if you're losing blood because you're getting your period and you're not eating meat, heme iron, odds are you're probably not going to have an abundance of iron, you know? And so then we get these people who are testing the iron status and, and obviously comes back low. And the solution is always obviously take iron or even worse, maybe we get people who aren't getting the period or maybe they're, they are eating meat and their iron status looks low. And that's a, that's a worse situation to be in because the question, anytime there's a deficiency, whether it's iron or, or any nutrient, we want to ask ourselves, why are we low in that? Are we low in that because we're not getting enough of that nutrient? And this is where, like, sometimes it just blows my mind. Like, this is a really basic thing. And it's like, why can't we just think this simply? If you go to a doctor and, and the doctor says, hey, look, your iron status is low, your ferritin's low, your iron's low, do you eat meat? And if they say, no, I don't, I'm vegan. It's like, okay, what's the most likely reason you're low in iron? It's probably because you don't consume the most bioavailable form of iron in the world, which is heme iron. That would make sense why you're low. If they say, yeah, I eat meat every day. It's like, well, does it sound like it's an intake issue? To me, that sounds like it's probably not an intake issue, right? So if it's not an intake issue, what else could it be? Well, it could be malabsorption, okay? Why would there be malabsorption? Well, that's going to depend on the nutrient. Iron, if we get that mostly from meat, what if we're malabsorbing protein? Meat. What if we had low stomach acid? That could be an issue, yeah? Or the third issue is it could be a, a utilization issue. Like maybe we're over-utilizing a nutrient. Maybe something's interfering with that utilization, bacterial, parasitic, whatever. But we want to start to work out what is it that's leading us through this state of deficiency. And if we specifically look at iron, it's just it's just so misunderstood. So our body, like in functional medicine world, there's a saying that iron is like chocolate cake to pathogens, right? So if there's an infection going on, a parasitic infection, a viral infection, bacterial infection, yeast infection, literally anything, the body probably doesn't want a huge amount of circulating iron to, to exacerbate that, right? And so it's pretty smart. It's probably a little bit smarter than we are. And what it does is it'll produce a hormone called hepcidin. And so that's going to downregulate how much iron we absorb. And so now what we're seeing is a, a downregulation of how much iron we're actually absorbing. And we that hepcidin may actually affect the way we're transporting iron out of cells as well. So we can start to get this really funky stuff going on with ferritin in our blood work and serum iron. But nonetheless, we're now not absorbing this thing efficiently. And not only are we not absorbing it, the body then says, well, not only do I not want to absorb this, I don't particularly want to want to transport more and find more in the body. So it now downregulates transferrin as well, which is our, our iron transport, yeah? And so now we look at iron, we look at our blood test, and you've got low serum iron, and you might have low ferritin, but 
You've also got low transferrin, which is the transporter. And it's like, well, how does that make sense? Wouldn't the body want to find more iron if there's deficient in iron? Wouldn't it be making more transferrin? And instead, it's making less. So it's not wanting to find iron. And our conventional way of looking at that is we know better than the body. We'll just pump you full of iron. And then it's just like, it's just honestly madness. Because then what happens is we don't have transferrin there to bind to the iron. And that's pretty important. We, we want iron. We want a lot of it to be bound. And we don't particularly want unbound iron, at least not unbound to transferrin because it's then going to bind to other things. So now we're taking an iron supplement because the doctor told us to, and we've got low amounts of transferrin, and we're taking huge bolus amounts of iron in one go, which is really pretty well absorbed. So we're getting this, this huge influx. And then that iron becomes not bound to transferrin. We're not getting transferrin-bound iron. We're now getting iron that's, that's binding to other molecules, and that seems to become really unstable. Like that essentially causes oxidative damage. And there's some studies now that are suggesting that there's probably a link to that, that particular form of unbound transferrin iron, to things like neurodegenerative conditions, inflammatory conditions, and so the question now becomes, are we actually potentially exacerbating or even essentially causing the onset of these conditions just by incorrectly taking an iron supplement? And I kind of think the answer is yes. And, you know, ultimately what we should be doing instead of just pumping someone full of iron is, is twofold, right? So one, we should be looking at, well, what's causing this infection and this inflammation, and that's a trickier question. It's, it's much harder than just giving someone an iron supplement. So I get why we're not doing that. And then the other thing we can do, and again, this is just like, I don't even understand why we make these decisions sometimes. But if you look at the studies on iron supplementation and you look at lactoferrin, lactoferrin, a protein that's found in like colostrum in, in milk, basically. Lactoferrin has a greater iron binding capacity than transferrin does. It's not an iron. It doesn't contain iron. It's just helping us essentially bind to iron. And if you look at studies comparing that with iron supplementation, it generally outperforms iron supplementation. So not only is it a, a solution to iron deficiency, and in fact, a lot of authors in these studies conclude it should be the first protocol of iron deficiency. So not only is it a potential solution, but if we're then taking iron supplements and th this is unbound iron, well, it makes sense to me that, that lactoferrin could potentially even mitigate some of that damage because it's helping bind to it. So we're just like, we're just getting it completely wrong, to be honest. Yeah, I feel exactly about iron as you do. And, and one of my closest friends is who on Instagram is the hormone healing RD. She's kind of the hair mineral queen and she's not, she's the iron queen too, but she also, if I ever send her someone, I'm like, all right, Amanda, this time I really think it's iron deficiency anemia. Like look at their, their hemoglobin hematocrites 11 over like 40. Like I think so, come on this time. It's really it. She's like, you got to show me the vitamin A and ceruloplasmin. She's like, I don't know. She's like, I, I don't know if, if again, what the bioavailable iron is versus or what your blood's showing you have versus what's being stored. And like you said, there is, this is actually a mineral where I do have concerns about toxicity with supplementation. This is, this and zinc are two that I'm very concerned with people just willy nilly kind of supplementing because there is a really complex system and there is risk of toxicity. So it's funny because this is something that is so over-prescribed. Again, I'm sure this is very much the case in Australia, like you said, where iron supplements, iron supplements. And I think the question should be, like you said, if your intake of meat is high, 
wonder if that's a true deficiency or if it's that your body is showing you what's available and you need to know how much you're storing basically. Cause it's, it's, it's really important for that bigger picture. So I would say if, if again, someone's prescribing an iron supplement, I would, this is something I would actually take with caution and would recommend to, there are, there are cases where a, a short term iron supplement might be justified, like absolutely, but it's, it's way over prescribed and recommended. So just making sure. And I think it's also because people will have really low energy and they'll go to the doctor and be like, is it your thyroid or your iron? And it's again, that like prescriptive idea of tear, take this iron supplement. But there's so many iron amongst anything else has like the iron recycling system. Like there are so many mechanisms happening when you take that supplement that are not seen in lab work. So you'd have to ask for more in-depth lab work, I think, before even knowing if that iron supplement is necessary for you. I've also been recently, and this is partly because of Amanda, but I've been having clients give blood because of iron build up because that's been a huge concern for some of my clients too. Have you seen that at all where people's H&H or, or other measures of iron are, are too high? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it, it tends to be more common in men, uh, at least in my yeah, experience, sure. and especially if we look like hemochromatosis genes, much more common in men than women as well. And women obviously have this sort of natural bloodletting system anyway, like usually once a month they're going to lose some iron. So men don't have that, and if they do have hemochromatosis genes, it does just build up. In fact, I looked at bloods only a few hours ago, and, and the ferritin was 780. Oh, my god! I work off 50 to 150 as my optimal values. and Yeah, so that's pretty high. So definitely, and, and you know, the, one of the first things I would recommend in that situation is is donate blood, give blood, like do this regularly to actually offload some of this iron. And ferritin specifically, once you get into those numbers, I no longer use ferritin as an iron measure. I'm using that as an inflammation measure. To me, that's that's looking like something totally different. I'm I'm not worried about deficiency at that point. I'm worried that, like you said, some of that iron overload is correlated with some sort of inflammatory status. I think that's how I would view it. And I'm sure, again, when you saw that ferritin, you were like, whoa, something's going on here um, because it is also a, you know, very, yeah, very usually. I mean, that's the tricky thing with ferritin. Hey, like it's an acute stage reactant. So exactly, it goes up with inflammation. And that's the other issue as well is sometimes inflammation itself can just be masking what we're actually seeing from an iron panel. So we have to understand it's telling us two things. But then sometimes we can also see all other inflammatory markers are fine ferritin's high, transparent saturation's high, serum ions high. It's like, okay, I think you've got you've got hemochromatosis or you've got some issue here with with you We know, gotta offload that blood. Exactly. Gotta offload that blood. Totally. Okay. We're gonna move on. That was a really hard one. Thank you for rolling with me on it. Just multivitamins in general. Is this something that you think people should take willy-nilly? And do you think this should be more prescriptive in nature? Tell me what you think about multivitamins in general. I don't have a hard line on multivitamins. It probably is a bit surprising maybe to some people here. I actually do take a multi myself. It's not something I did for a long time. It's not necessarily something I do all the time. Me too. There you go. Okay. Interesting. It feels... I was like, I felt like I was coming out of the closet saying that. Like a lot of people like you don't take a multi. There's studies that show you're going to die earlier. And it's like, well, yeah, I mean, that's, I don't know if you know the study I'm referring to. It is done in, in healthcare work. It's a very old study and they had people who were taking multis and the life expectancy was shorter. But it's like, what was the quality of that multivitamin? Like this is just an observational study. That were healthcare workers. You think they're taking alternative forms of multivitamins? Like probably not, you know what I mean? So... I think when it comes to multis, my biggest concern, well, I guess a couple of concerns. One is what form are they using? 
you know, most conventional multivitamins you get just off the supermarket shelf, they're not using bioavailable forms. They're going to use cheap forms. They're going to use synthetic forms. They're going to use piss poor B vitamin forms. You can't even absorb. They're using oxide forms of magnesium and zinc and, and, and they probably add iron to it as well. And so now, I mean, like, you know, the magnesium oxide, what's the absorption of that? Like 8%? Like, goodness, what are you going to get out of 8% out of 30 milligrams of magnesium? Nothing, you know? So most multis, show me a standard multi, I'd say, what's the point of taking that? It's not doing anything good for you. It's probably causing harm. But if you can get a good multi that's properly dosed using proper forms, I think it's got a place. I don't think everyone necessarily needs it but I think it's got a place like me, like I said, genetically, I've got some issues with B vitamins. And so I'm like, well, I could take a B complex or I can just take a multi. It's got a good amount of magnesium glycinate in there. Like it's got a little bit of zinc, a bit of copper. I'll just take that. So I think people could do a lot worse than a good multi, but I also don't think it's not, you know, it's not the solution to I've got low energy. Let's go get a multi. It's like, well, yeah, maybe you're low in some of those nutrients, but it's really just a shotgun approach, isn't it? Yeah, and I think we're taking multis for the same reason. For myself, I would have to eat a very well-planned diet in America to get all the nutrients that I need because it's we're depleted in our very soil in the meat we're consuming. So it's always a catch-up game, I think, for all of us to get to not only adequate levels of certain vitamins, but optimal. But what I would look at in multivitamins, like you said, is I would not want one that had any iron in it. I would be looking to make sure the B vitamins are methylated and I would make sure that the form of magnesium, uh, and I wouldn't want zinc too high either. I, I would be concerned about that, like maybe less than like five or 10 per day. And I think that magnesium too, I'm looking for ones that are like glycinate three and eight. And we'll talk about magnesium more versus oxide. And I think if you're getting a brand you trust, the good thing is there's going to be a lot of consideration for these things already. So I think brand trust is important also. And those are some of the things I would look at for a multivitamin too. Take me to magnesium, which is my, you know, my favorite supplement ever. And I, I don't have, again, not because it's fixing anything, but for me, two of my like foundational errors in my life are sleep and stress. So magnesium is really supportive for both of those things. So it's very mechanistically supportive for me. Tell me about magnesium. What, what are you seeing people get wrong when they're buying it from the counter? What's the, what's your concerns about magnesium and, and how do we optimize the supplements we're taking? I mean, look, there's not many supplements that I would say anyone can just take. Like, you know, often people say, like, I'll get questions and I'll be like, hey, what are five supplements every single person should take? And it's like, well, it depends. Like, for what purpose? Like, who are you? How's your diet? What are you doing? But if I had to give an answer to, to you know, a handful of supplements people, 99% of people will benefit from taking, magnesium is going to be one of those. It's very uncommon that I'm going to write a protocol for someone and, and not include magnesium. Like, I can't even think of the last time I did that. So, you know, we just know, and especially if people are exercising, I need to say that. Like, if you look at studies on the amount of magnesium loss in just one training bout, one exercise bout, like, you lose a stack of magnesium. So for the people that I'm working with, I'm trying to get them to exercise as well, it's like, well, you definitely need to be taking your magnesium. But like you said, quality form, you know, magnesium oxide, 8 to 12% bioavailable. Like, what are you going to get? Oh, absorbable. What are you going to get out of that, you know? There's so much when it comes to supplement companies. There's so much that they do, cheap companies or dodgy companies, just to like save a bit of money. And it's it's not overly fair to consumer. 
right? Like if you're a consumer and you go and you're like, oh, I just heard this cool podcast. Michelle said magnesium is amazing. And so they go to a shop and they get a magnesium on the shelf. It's like four times out of five is going to be mag oxide. And if it's not, you look in the back and it's going to say, Magne- on the, the, the front of the label is going to be like magnesium, 500 milligrams. And you're like, great, that's how much I said I should take. Okay, I'll take 500 milligrams, one tablet. You take one tablet. Like I had this conversation all the time. And I'm like, I'm sorry I burst your bubble, but you're not taking 500 milligrams of mag. Like, yeah, I am. It says it. It's like, yeah, yeah. Have a look at the back. And it'll be like 500 milligrams per serving. One serving is 10 tablets or five tablets. It's like you're taking one tablet. You're getting like 50 to 100 milligrams of mag. You know, it's it's just so dishonest. So this is the danger people run into with supplementation is they, they either get poor forms, they're way underdosing, and they just or they're taking stuff they don't need. You know, like it, it's just a minefield when it comes to supplementation. So I don't know about you with magnesium, but for me with mag, the way I would dose it, and I work in kilos, you probably work in pounds, but I would say based on body weight, I, I go quite high. I'd say like for 10 kilos of body weight, I'm going to be using at least 50 milligrams of mag. So you get a, an average, like let's, I mean, the, the only pounds I know at the top of my head would be 100 kilos, 220 pounds. I'm about 100 kilos, right? So for me, I would take a minimum 500 milligrams of mag, right? And if someone's got a severe deficiency, I'm going to probably double that, like at least a 1,000 milligrams for someone my size. Whereas you go look at my supplements and be like, well, standard serving is 100 milligrams or 150 milligrams. Like, well, what's that really going to do? And we like, it's going to, it's going to help a little bit. Look at what mechanisms need magnesium. Well, basically every single metabolic process in the body needs magnesium. Glucose regulation needs magnesium. You have someone with metabolic issues, there's someone who's diabetic, insulin resistant, got fatty liver, anything like that. Okay. Take a couple hundred milligrams of mag is still going to get benefit. But how much more benefit are we going to get if we actually take how much we need, you know? Yeah, this is magnesium, such an interesting one. And first of all, just to lay out on the very high level, I'm extremely against oxide too. Citrate, generally people use for bowel movements. And then people will use glycinate or threonate for stress reduction or sleep. Magnesium is amazing in that it's involved in all of these enzymatic reactions. Like it's so essential for basically every single process that happens inside of our bodies. It's so interesting because when I have clients who are using it for sleep, I'll often find that that even if at 125 milligrams to start with, some of them get like too almost hung over the next day. And part of it is just like, I'm like, your body is not used to being in the parasympathetic state. They get like this hangover, even from a small amount of magnesium. And I... I don't remember the last time I have not at some point in a client journey introduced magnesium. Like I think it is essential and very depleted in our soil. So it's completely, completely essential for most people to supplement. Like you said, even sometimes for life, but it's very interesting to see that some people get this like magnesium hangover because again, their body's like adjusting to relaxing for the first time, which is so wild. Have you seen that before the magnesium hangover? I've seen it a handful of times, not a whole lot, but it is something you can see. My experience has been any nutrient really that someone's like deficient enough in tends to have some of those effects when you start supplementing with it. So, you know, I've seen that with B vitamins, especially methylated B vitamins. If someone's really quite deficient and they've got, you know, methyl cofactor issues or whatever, and you start using an active form of B vitamins, they get this ramping up in histamine symptoms and 
like cognitive symptoms. And it's like, well, that's not a sign that you don't need that. That's a sign that you actually really need it that. Like so things much. are actually coming online again. So that's how I would feel with magnesium. Yeah. Yeah. The, the B, so I have a long history because of my vegan diet for over 10 years of vitamin B12 deficiency. That is substantial. Like my lowest numbers were in the 100s. Like those are some of the lowest I've seen for people, which I, I tell my oh, clients. Gosh. Yeah. I'm like, I know. I tell my clients, I'm like, if you're like in the less than 200, we're talking about neurological issues at this point. Like we're talking about like really serious stuff because the deficiency rate in the United States, the cutoff is under 200. I'm like, you could be having neurological issues under 300. So like that's that the deficiency level is way too low for vitamin B12. So I also do a bunch of IVs and injections for B12 because it's like, it's such a catch up game for me because my stores were so empty too. Let's talk about vitamin B12 for a second. Is this another supplement where you say a lot of people much like magnesium can benefit from vitamin B12 supplementation. Is this something where you're nervous about toxicity? Take us through your B vitamin spiel. I do start to feel like over the last years, I've felt a little bit more, I kind of feel like a lot of people should be taking B vitamins. And I didn't used to feel that way, but especially after just looking at more and more lab work, like you said, you just see not only, you either see B12 low, serum B12 low, or you see issues with MCV. You know, it's, it's, 50% of the time, I'll see people who, who seem to have some kind of functional B12 or B9 issue. And again, you know, like you said, our, our food is depleted. B12 doesn't even exist in plants. And even, you know, animal meat tends to have lower levels of B12. Like it, it's something that we're just not getting huge amounts of in our diet. And, and I would sort of talk about like B12. Yes, it's, it's probably a little bit unique in that aspect, but B6, B9, B12. I sort of look at these guys all together. And it's one of those, like that, that sort of complex using these guys all together. I think most people really are going to benefit from this. Like, again, if we look at, well, what, what are these things helping with? Well, detoxification, like liver detox. How, how important are bees as, as cofactors with liver detox, right? Um, you know, you mentioned how low your B12 was and you mentioned some of the neurological concerns there. Well, what about GABA? Like, we need B12 to produce GABA. And, you know, how many vegans you get? And I've got nothing against vegans. I was vegetarian for over 10 years, but how many vegans you get coming to you? who are like wired at night, they can't sleep, they're not getting deep sleep, they're just anxious in the evening. And it's like, yeah, you, you know you've, you've got a GABA deficiency. Like you're so low in B12, this is going to be having an effect. And, and you know what else helps with, with GABA? Taurine. Where are you getting your taurine in your diet? Like you're not. So I do think that based on our diets, you know, if, if diet was perfect, does someone need a B12 supplement? Probably not. But based on the, the modern diet, I think most people are going to benefit from B vitamin, B complex supplement. And like I said, that's partly why I take a, a multivitamin. And not only, you know, I mentioned, well, B12, we're only getting this in, in meat and animal products. And, you know, a lot of the time when I look at blood work, I, I like to play the game of let me look at the blood work first and I'll try to guess what symptoms or, you know, what's going on with this client. <laughs> me too. It's fun. It's fun. It's yeah. totally fun. And you look at it and you're like, oh, this person's a vegan. Like there's, there's two options in my mind here. This person's either a vegan or they've got like IBD or, or something that's really affecting absorption. And sometimes, not like usually that's going to be the case, but sometimes I'll then look at the form and they won't have ticked vegan. And I'm like, oh, that shocked me. And then I go down to the food log and like, you know, on Monday, don't need any meat. Tuesday, don't need any meat. Wednesday, I'll have one meal that has meat. You know, and it's like, that's what people think is normal now. Like that, that, like how much are we going to be able to satisfy nutrient requirements if we're having 
one meal every couple of days. You know, people are like, oh, you know, I can't have meat to save the planet. I just eat meat twice a week. It's like, great. <laughs> we can talk about that. That's a whole nother conversation. But you realize that that 100 grams of minced meat you're having, your ground meat you're having once or twice a week, it's just not going to cut it. Unless maybe if it was like 100 grams of liver, okay, maybe in that situation you might be getting enough, but that's really the only one. So based on, I guess, just adequacy of diet, I do think B vitamins generally a lot of people are going to benefit from taking. I completely agree with you. And it's also a lot of B vitamins I think of as being a huge catch-up game, again, because you don't see that your stores are being depleted during that time. Like by the time your blood labs are representing B12 deficiency, you've probably been deficient for a very long time in your stores because it's not going to show up there. So I, I definitely agree. And I will say that the interesting thing about magnesium and B12 is that these are really all B vitamins is that like you said, they're related to detoxification. And from a mechanism level, we deplete these things in times of stress. We deplete B vitamins and we deplete magnesium in times of stress. So again, we have, like you said, this very incongruent environment where we're not really supposed to be as stressed as we are. So our demand for these vitamins and minerals is very high. And at the same time, our supply is very low. So it's just, it's, it's, you're, you're kind of always playing catch up when it comes to, in my head, B vitamins and magnesium, in some cases, vitamin D, K, you know, I think there's a big catch up game where you have to compensate often, you know, even if it's not for life once a year, I have to do some sort of a gut protocol for myself and I have to do some sort of IVs or injections for B12 because I just, no matter what, it's very hard to catch up with the amount of stress we have. And, you know, the amount of pollutants and things we have too. And especially you'll, you'll, this is just a personal anecdote too. My, not only is my B12 that abysmal, I recently got my B1 taken, my thiamine, which you only look at really for people who are like alcoholics. That's the only time that that's going to be really depleted. And mine was non recognizable in my labs. Like it just wasn't there oh, wow. at all. And so in my head, instead of me saying, Oh, why am I missing that in my diet? I was saying, holy crap, my liver must have been going through it this year because I had a mold toxicity issue. And I was like, wow. So again, I'm looking at the mechanism for that and understanding that we need these nutrients for liver detoxification. We need these nutrients for our HPA axis and we deplete them in times of stress. So we have to think about not only how these are represented in our blood, but how they're representative in our environment and whole and how we're interacting with our environment too. I think that's very true for B vitamins for people. Okay, I have two more supplements and I can't I know we're running we're running way freaking over and I'm not going to steal your time anymore cuz it's the middle of the night there, 10:15. Oh my gosh. This is going to be a bigger kind of you do not have to go into super detail cuz it's very complicated, but glutathione is something that has now become popularized. We see it in different forms. I, you know, I, I get a nice push in my IV. People get it, you know, through liposomal forms, non-liposomal forms. Tell me why you feel is glutathione one of the supplements that again, everyone should be taking. There should be caution with taking. Is it overhyped or is it just hyped enough? What do you think about glutathione? Yeah. So I tend to use, well, let's take a step back quickly. So glutathione, yeah, master antioxidant. I mean, arguably maybe this antioxidants are as important, more important, but either way, like you said, people know it as, as really important antioxidant in the body do need it for, for liver function, obviously. And, and even if we look at stuff like aging well and age related illnesses, like glutathione is very important for sure, but we need to understand our body's making glutathione and we're making it out of amino acids. So if we've got an issue with these amino acids, in particular methionine and cysteine, well, we're probably not going to be making a lot of or adequate amounts of glutathione. 
So firstly, we have to look at, well, are we actually making enough? And not only do we firstly need to have enough building blocks, so methionine, well, sulfur-based amino acids, basically, but then we need to look at the whole homocysteine cycle and we're converting that process well, and that requires B vitamins. So again, we've, we've run into that issue if we've got B vitamin issues. And then hopefully we've now, hopefully that up until this point is working well. Now we've got cysteine and now we can convert cysteine and, and glutamine or glutamic acid. We can actually make glutathione. So even before we get to the point of having glutathione, there's a lot of things that can go wrong there. So firstly, we need to make sure that's covered. And again, you get someone who's, who's really low protein diet. They've got issues with sulfur whatever's going on, we're going to have B vitamin issues, whatever, we're going to have issues there. Maybe they're taking, I don't know, maybe they're taking excessive amounts of B vitamins, excessive amounts of B9. That could be causing some issues, right? Squashing the homocysteine. So we need to make sure that that up until that point is covered. Then we look at the glutathione and we're like, okay, cool, we've got glutathione. Again, same question, any nutrient, any antioxidant, whatever. Are we creating enough? Are we depleting it? If we look at glutathione, we're like, okay, we've, we've, we've depleted our glutathione. Well, what's depleting glutathione? Like, yes, toxins, but, you know, especially like endotoxins, bacterial toxins we're exposed to. We're really lucky. We've got a mark on, on, on a blood test where we can start to get an indication of glutathione status. We can look at GGT in, in the liver panel, and that's going to tell us pretty well how much glutathione we're breaking down. And something that I see, and I just want to acknowledge, I haven't actually seen this in literature, and I'm, I'm just waiting for the day that this comes out. But in my clients, time and time and time again, when I've got clients with a bacterial issue, and in particular negative gram bacteria overgrowth, usually things like SIBO, what I tend to see is GGT low. And so when I'm seeing GGT low, I'm starting to think to myself, have we, like, have we depleted these building blocks? Have we got an issue here with sulfur metabolism? Like, what's going on here? But these are the clients, which it's funny because we look at the literature and it's like, well, we know that yeast is going to be causing issues there. Like, you'd think yeast is probably going to be the thing that's going to have a big impact on GGT. But anecdotally, I'm just seeing negative gram bacteria do this. So their clients, where I see that, I see GGT is low. They've got these IBS symptoms, SIBO symptoms. And I think, you know what? that's a client who's going to really benefit from glutathione supplementation or, or N-acetylcysteine supplementation or, or whatever. Also acknowledging there can be a whole lot of genetic factors. Again, people can be underproducing glutathione just due to genetic SNPs. Like they can be really unlucky in what they've inherited. So there, there can be environmental things. There can be genetic things. There can be diet things, nutritional things that can lead to a state of higher glutathione need. So do I think a lot of people will benefit from glutathione? Absolutely. Do I think, like, do I take it? I don't. You know, I don't think I need it. But if I was, I don't know, if I was experiencing digestive symptoms, if I had a yeast overgrowth, a bacterial overgrowth, if I, if I was under like a whole lot of oxidative stress or whatever, then yeah, I think that'd be a wonderful thing to do. Get an IV. Absolutely. I'm not at all opposed to that. Again, supplementation quality matters, right? We look at like someone, might say, hey, you know, if I've heard good stuff about glutathione, I'll go buy the first glutathione I see, and you get a glutathione, it's just going to be reduced glutathione. All that is is those amino acids that I just told you about in a pill. And it's like, well, what's going to happen if you, if you start swallowing amino acids? You're just going to digest them, yeah? So, okay, all well and good. You're going to have the building blocks, but it's not like you're going to take a glutathione supplement and suddenly have cellular levels of glutathione go up like it's not going to work like that and we assume it does because it's called glutathione it may as well just be called 
amino acid blend, you know, like it's not actually glutathione. So liposomal glutathione, that is one that I, I do use sometimes in that situation. I think someone's really going to benefit from it, but it's honestly like it's, it's, I don't even want to call it a bandaid. Like it's usually, it's just support. It's a crutch. Yeah. They've got something which support. is depleting it. Yeah. They've got some liver burden. Exactly. And so that's not a bad thing. Like I think sometimes the issue with, with functional medicine is we start saying, unless it fixes the mechanism, it's wrong. And it's like, no, 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 hang on. We still don't want someone to be symptomatic. Like we want someone to still have a high quality of life. That's okay initially for me to get that person feeling better. But we also need to be doing that stuff too. I always tell that to clients too. I'm like, just because I'm talking to you about how we're going to work at the root cause in the long term, we're not going to have you suffer in the short term. Like that's not the goal. There's also some supplements, and this is important to say, like there's some supplements that work in the short term on symptoms, like a supplement, like a GI revive or something, even though again, it's working on leaky gut in the long term. in the short term, people can be if going to the bathroom more regularly. I'm like, we don't have to wait to treat the, the long term by and ignore the short term. Essentially, I think glutathione and a lot of these supplements, what I just want to caution people with too, is that if you're giving your body something that is going to give your immune system and your gut the boost it needs to start a fight, just make sure that you have everything in order. So what I mean by that is a lot of times people are taking like mass amounts of antioxidants or taking glutathione because let's say they have like a mold issue. The problem is like once your body starts that fight, you, you might feel worse at first. And we think of this as being like the Herxheimer reaction or something like that. But making sure again, that you're, if you're not ready to pick a fight with the bad the gut bugs or, you know, mold or something like that. Just make sure that you're not boosting your body's ability to fight before you have your foundations settled. And I think that I see that so much with like people just start a mold protocol and I'm like, whoa, mold is like really tough to beat and it's really sticky and you have to be careful because if you don't target first, even something like parasites, again, you have to make sure your foundations are settled before you start killing a bunch of parasites. Make sure your body can get rid of them. Your drainage pathways are open, you know, and I think that's, I see people with glutathione specifically, they get sicker when they start taking it. And I'm like, maybe it's not the time to be sicker, you know? So just being careful again with those high antioxidant supplements and everything too. And just making sure again, you have your foundation ready before you, you pick a fight with some bad bugs inside. I think that's important for people too. Okay. I have used more. I've overstayed my Jake welcome. I cannot thank you. This is already going to be my favorite episode of season two. It's hurtful to the other guests, but I do mean it. And I, I'm not apologizing for that. Jake, I'm so grateful you came on today. You are a wealth, a wealth of knowledge and humor and fun. Tell me where can people find you? How can people work with you? I know, of course, you have opp opportunities for individuals looking for health changes and practitioners. So tell us, everything. And we're going to, of course, link to everything in the show notes with your amazingness. Sure. Thank you, Michelle. It's been an absolute blast. Love having these conversations and, and you know, speaking with people where we're seeing eye to eye and, and sort of on the same mission. So absolute pleasure. All my stuff at the moment is on social media. Like that is the one place I hang out, Instagram at the moment or, or Twitter. I don't actually know what my Twitter handle is, but Instagram might be more active and it's just coach underscore Jake Dolichel, which is D-O-L-E-S-C-H-A-L. That is where I am. All the info and what I do, how to work with me is there. Like I said before, I sort of split my time in, in two. I mentor people and, and that includes sort of that educational content. And I work with people on a one-on-one -on -one sort of way. At the moment, that's mostly consultations, but I'll do like a 12-week kind of protocol for them. But all my info is there and I 
post a lot. I do Q and A's. If people have questions, just I do at least one or two Q and A's a week on Instagram. So shoot me a question and I'll hopefully answer as many as possible, but I just love engaging with people and, and sharing some educational content. It's beautiful. Thank you. And I, I, you will definitely, if you follow me, see Jake's content because I'm reposting it so constantly. And then you give, you, you give a little thumbs up or something. I'm like, you don't have to do it every time, Jake. I repost your stuff like at least twice a week at this point. Like it, <laughs> my page is just a landing page for Jake's content. Like it's so good. Thank you so much. I definitely want to have you back on. We can go deeper into blood chemistry in the future and also check out your podcast. Tell them about your podcast too. Yes, yes. So first, I'd love to come back and talk about blood chem. It is a huge passion of mine, so absolutely anytime. Yes, I do have a podcast with my colleague, Dave O'Brien. It's called The Gut Feeling, and basically, we just talk about whatever you want to talk about. So usually, it's something we're going to bring it back to the gut somehow, but usually some kind of – a lot of the time, what we do is we'll talk about a condition and how we think maybe the conventional system has kind of missed the boat a little bit, and then we talk about alternatively what could be going on from a gut perspective. But, yeah, please check it out and – leave this review if you like it. If you don't like it, you don't need to leave your review. That's fine. Um. Yeah, no, actually don't leave a review if you don't like it. And thank you. Thank you so much, Jake. And I. <laughs> thank you so much for tuning in to the Quiet the Diet podcast. If you found any of this information relevant or you related to it, please feel free to share the podcast. It would mean the world to us. Also remember to subscribe so you don't miss any episodes and you can follow us on Instagram at quietthedietpod. We'll put the link in the show notes after each episode. Thank you again for listening and I can't wait to see you in the next episode.